Welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, sponsored by Munters, experts in climate control systems for safe, high-quality battery cell production and R&D, delivering stable, low dew point conditions whilst minimising energy use. Episode 13, Navigating the Energy Transition, the outlook for the EV and battery industry. The end of the year is always a good time to take stock and maybe take a look at some of the issues and forecasts for the year ahead. And it's been a fascinating year in the industry with many moving parts. In this episode, I'm joined by Max Reed, Principal Analyst at Wood Mackenzie, to discuss the EV battery landscape as we close out 2023 and look forward to 2024 and beyond. Well, I was reading a report a couple of weeks ago called EV and Batteries Driving the Energy Transition. I thought it was a fascinating, insightful and concise report, a very good place to take the temperature of where we are now and where we're heading over the next few years. And it was written by a man called Max Reed with Wood McKenzie. I'm very pleased to be able to welcome Max to the Battery Technology Podcast to talk that report through. So very good afternoon to you, Max. Very good afternoon, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. I suppose a useful place to start might be just to get uh, a little bit more information about your background, the kind of work you do, the kind of work Wood McKenzie does as well, and just kind of talk us through a little bit more about that. Sure. My background is is actually in battery chemistry. So I completed a uh, master's four or five years ago in uh, looking at sodium ion anode materials, so quite niche in the sector. Uh, and then I spent a couple of years in research science looking at battery technology, so materials discovery, scaling up new products and devices around the power sources um, um, sector before joining Wood McKenzie, um, which is a sort of global consultancy that focuses across the energy regime. So looking at oil and gas, renewables, hydrogen and the metals and mining sector. And so I joined a, uh, a battery raw materials team, which is focusing on the impact of you know, increasing, say, uh, electrification of road transport and decarbonisation of the grid and energy storage systems that that entails. Uh, and that impacts on the uh, upstream side of um, battery raw materials. So lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, manganese are the key ones, but you know, copper's really impacted by uh, these sectors too so uh, tying tying those two sectors together and um, essentially highlighting the, the challenges and some of the opportunities around uh, sort of the future landscape of, of the energy transition um, sort of across the whole battery value chain. Some additional context this was a report that was kind of prepared for the London Metals Exchange so this re- report was um, released as part of uh, Wood McKenzie's yes LME week um, events. So we hosted um, quite a, a few hundred uh, companies at an event during LME week, which is this London Metal Exchange week, where a lot of companies around the world gather in London to to uh, yeah uh, uh, to focus on the metals side of um, or all these sectors. And so uh, we, as a company, hosted hosted a lot of companies and, and gave our views across the energy transition as i said certainly focusing on the energy transition metals so um i was joined by colleagues in who focus on copper rare earth aluminium um as well as you know, emission side of the metal sector too so um it was quite a, quite a diverse and, and very interesting event and, and, and i covered the battery the battery supply chain and electric vehicle outlook um, as part of that 
So let's start off with your assessment of general forecasts for growth, because I guess any conversation about battery materials, cells, is, is in the context of where we're, where we're heading demand-wise. So today in 2023, we're seeing, so the context is around 15 million electric vehicles to be sold this year, which equates to roughly 1,000 gigawatt hours worth of, of cells, which is pretty much all lithium-ion cells. So uh, maybe 2020, that was an increase from 200 gigawatt hours worth. So, you know, uh, quite a large growth in the last three years. And then, yes, as you say, the outlook is is looking very strong in terms of demand growth. So up to three and a half thousand gigawatt hours. So over tripling by 2030. Uh, and that, that comes from around 40 to 45 million electric vehicle sales in 2030. So, so again, really strong growth around tripling um, um, of that side. Partly, not just you know, more EVs will be sold each year um, as time goes on. Part of this, you know, strategies from companies and, and governments, um, of course, but also increasing electric vehicle battery pack sizes as well per per EV is driving growth for, for batteries. And obviously, as, as as you mentioned at the top, you know, the the, the fact that battery raw materials will be um, impacted by the the increase in demand for these cells so lithium nickel cobalt graphite manganese are sort of the five typical key battery raw materials but as i mentioned there's there's a few others that will be impacted you know aluminium and ev frames is, is a good example copper obviously around the wiring and the harnesses um, for electric vehicles um so yeah really strong growth um in demand for those and, and yeah the, the part of part of my work is to, to marry that up with the supply sector and the feasibility of, of meeting such such large growth right so the so the growth really driven by two things driven by the increased uh, adoption of evs if you like mm-hmm. as a mode of transport but also the growth in battery size in terms of kilowatt hours per batteries pack and those two things are both increasing and therefore will be an aggregate even greater increase in requirements in terms of raw materials yeah, absolutely. It's it's certainly so the consumer sort of uh, expectations of electric vehicles is trending to larger, larger ranges and therefore larger pack sizes from this. I think um, we're entering a really key period for the for the EV story or for road transport decarbonisation, where a lot of the early adopters have really saturated their sort of EV uh, purchases, and so to to boost the EV adoption rates will now be entering more of the mass market where they might need a bit more um, a bit more convincing and therefore ranges will, will will increase in what we're seeing from the OEM side from from the automaker side yeah trending for these larger pack sizes to, to have larger ranges to tempt uh, consumers to, to their electric vehicle products instead of a yeah fossil fuel based combustion engine in product are you detecting any pushback either is it just me or, is it, or am I, 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 I is that correct <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, so a really key thing that I think most people know is, you know, the, the comparison between the upfront cost of an electric vehicle and, and a, say, an internal combustion engine counterpart. And that's a real struggle for automakers. So, you know, a lot of automakers, in fact, most of them will probably be losing money per EV that, that they're selling. At the moment, the, the economics around it is, is really difficult at the moment. And so, therefore, yeah, the upfront cost is is higher at the moment than really what it what it should be to incentivize adoption. But again, it's tough for, for you know, automakers to, to have this, this this loss per EV. Um, and so, yes, there is this pushback. You know, a lot of people can't afford to spend 
what is you know over 40 50 60 thousand dollars or pounds or euros whatever country you're in versus you know what is a, a much cheaper um internal combustion engine vehicle or perhaps you're going to the second hand market instead when they're looking at a, a new vehicle so hence so this 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 um this year we probably see around 25 percent penetration for evs as part of some sort of sales so total vehicle sales so so i think certainly a good rate but um thus far but uh yeah it's going to be a struggle to carry on at this rate uh going forwards to sort of the especially in say the eu um looking at up to you know 100 by 2035 in theory um um is a target but yeah it, even getting to the 50 60 percent ev penetration in, in the next seven years will, will be quite difficult yeah it's a big challenge one of the things just to just pick up on before we move on from the overall demand growth is that Is that consistent across all regions or are there any particular idiosyncrasies between, say, North America and Europe? You can point to specific differences or is that a generally similar pattern wherever you are in the world? I mean, the three really key regions for for EVs currently is China, Europe and North America. And essentially, Europe is, is kind of straddling between China and North America in terms of adoption. So China is well into the 30s percentage, maybe 35% or so this year. Europe is in the 20s. And then North America is sort of lagging behind in the, the low teens percentage EV adoption. So <clears throat> yeah, three three certainly different stories. So China was really helped by having a lot of really small cars that were electrified and are obviously low cost as well. And so we saw quite a quick adoption of of the really small segment so the a and b segment is is what it is in terms of electrification rates and as i said that's now becoming saturated and so maybe you know maybe the increase in adoption might might might, might slow from now on whereas the markets in europe and then certainly north america is you know much less so on the really small segment range i mean i've been traveling around north america a few times this year and it's amazing the size of the cars that are now on the road both combustion engine and now obviously electrified i think you know the ford f-150 lightning is a good example but other yeah other um, sort of gm models and um yeah you, you sort of see them and they're just huge just because the appetite for you know small range and small city cars is, is much lower in, in north america when you know, the driving ranges that are tended to be driven is, is is higher and as i say europe's kind of in the middle you know we have a here in europe you know a healthy mix of sort of city inner city cars as well as you know larger suvs as well i guess one answer politically to driving adoption forward is the role of incentives mm. i'm interested in your view on that in terms of trends that you see in terms of incentives and how that and, and the success or not of those kind of incentive regimes that you see around the world well i, I think <clears throat> even to date even with the early adopters incentives have been really critical in driving any ev adoption so yeah i'll start with china china's been offering you know, some level of EV incentives for, for many years now. And obviously the EU <clears throat> has uh, has offered incentives too. And so so the, the good example is um, China was uh, uh, pulling back its incentives towards the end of uh, last year in 2022. And we saw a real surge for EV sales in that period. And, and then a real drop off, maybe a drop off by about two thirds in terms of total EV sales in China in the start of 2023. Now, the government decided to bring back those um, 
uh, uh, his incentives back in the middle of this year, and we've seen you know, growth again recover to, to those quite high levels. So it's about 900,000 um, electric vehicles sold in China each month um, at the moment. So you can see the really the impact of the incentives on that side. And then <clears throat> the, the the big one that we've seen is is the Inflation Reduction Act in in the US, um, looking to drive EV sales. Again, this is a relatively complex case, I suppose. So um, until so f- for this year, when the, the the credits, the tax credits came in, looking to incentivize EV adoption, um, consumers receive that tax credit kind of when they um, at the at the end of the year, say when the um, the tax bill was due, and from January next year, so in 2024, in a couple of weeks' time, they'll be able to receive this sort of at the at the point of purchase. So we'll probably will see you know, a, a greater impact from that side, just because you, you'll see that uh, instant impact with the large caveats that that's kind of dominated the news recently around, yeah, restricting tax credits to, to EVs that contain you know, critical minerals or critical or, or battery components that were sourced from what the US calls foreign entity of concerns. And this includes, well, China, North Korea, Iran and, and Russia, Whereas China's the really the really big impact for the battery side, so so from next year, yeah, any, any battery components you know manufactured in in China essentially will um, will will mean that EVs ineligible for any tax credit um, side. So whilst yeah, so so whilst it might be promote more consumers to to buy an EV that that will have a tax credit from the automaker side, it might be more it certainly will be more difficult to make that EV model eligible for the tax credit too so so, so we'll, we'll wait and see uh, quantifiably what the impact is but yeah uh, it's looking like it it might actually be quite tough from, from that side thanks for listening to the battery technology podcast we're very pleased that you've joined us and as we go into 2024 we've got a lot of new episodes in the pipeline featuring some outstanding guests And we're going to try to release episodes on a fortnightly basis, which is a bit quicker than 2023, simply because we've got so much to go through. And please, if you have the opportunity, subscribe, maybe leave us a review. That really helps other people find the Battery Technology Podcast. And listenership is growing rapidly with every episode now, getting about 25% more downloads than the one that preceded it. And of course, if there's a particular development that you wish to highlight, please let me know. We're always interested in hearing about the latest advances. My contact details are always in the show notes that accompany each episode. So have a peaceful and relaxing holiday season wherever you are in the world. Thank you again for listening in 2023. And now let's get back to this fascinating conversation with Max Reed of Wood Mackenzie. That's an interesting segue, actually, into the whole idea of the reliance on China, I guess, for the the resources and the minerals and the key componentry that is required to drive this industry forward. I'm interested in your view on that in the sense of where we stand today in terms of reliance on China and the kind of strategies that some countries are putting in place to try and do something about that and where you foresee that reliance on China changing over perhaps the next half a decade or so. 
I think it uh, it'll come to no surprise that that yeah a lot of the battery supply chain either goes or enters through China or comes from China uh, depending on on what stage it is. So we see um, so the raw materials aspect, so you extracting minerals out of the ground, you know, not much of that actually occurs within China for lithium, cobalt, nickel. Say maybe a quarter of lithium coming out of the ground might might be based in China, whereas most of it is in Australia and and um, either Argentina or, or Chile. But the critical aspect is turning these raw materials uh, into battery grade chemicals, which is uh, the feedstock for 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 battery um, components. And that is quite a technical process, quite a challenging process, and, and really high purity and grades are required for that. And uh, most of that does occur uh, within China um, to date. And as, as you say, we kind of expect that to carry on as well. So maybe roughly 70% of, of battery grade, uh, or, or, or sorry, lithium chemicals and cobalt chemicals is, 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 uh, comes from China or within China. And a high proportion of this will, will come from also Chinese companies as well. Um, and then looking to the battery grade side, it will be even higher. And even with other aspects. So typically the battery metals concerns, yeah, the lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, these are the cathode or the positive electrode metals. But the negative electrode material is, is graphite. And that has a real, or, or the world has a real dependence on China for that side. So yeah, perhaps 99% of you know, that kind of number of, of, of purified spherical graphite, which again is this this um, key feedstock for, for the anode material, for this negative electrode material, is, is within China as well, uh, as well as um, some other graphite products as well. So it's really high dominance um, of, of China on that side too, let alone further downstream. So looking at these components as well, so the cathode and anode that I mentioned, even some other components, separators and electrolytes, these are kind of all really key for every every lithium ion cell. You know, roughly 80% you know, on average across those, 80% um, of production is within China um, last year. And we do see you know a, a shift in that reliance, but, but not a significant amount from, say, cell production, component production, 80%, it might reduce to around 70, 70% or so over the next five years, as you, as you say, just with you know, investment that's happening within Europe and North America. But, you know, as in, as in many cases, you know, China is not slowing down in its building out of its industry. It's got a, it's a, a very strong position, as, as you might expect, and it's now built up a really good technical um, expertise and, um, yeah, and know-how which again is quite key for the battery industry. So it's quite a challenge to, to remove, yeah, remove any part of sort of China, China produced material or China know-how from, um, from your cell uh, materials or technology. And it's not going to be done at, at an individual firm level. I mean, this, this is presumably political strategy, really, or you know, economic strategy. So what we're talking about there really is this concept of the midstream mm. in the sense. So, I mean, if you were, if you were to give me a definition of, the midstream and then we can talk about what what's happening with that quite a simple definition is, is you're turning say raw materials or ore or whatever you get out of the ground into a um yeah into a product or a material that goes into a battery you know that you you can't just put a yeah extract a raw material and, and put it straight into a gigafactory it's it's got to go through a number of these processes that yeah uh, you know we sort of determine as the midstream. So I said, you know, refining into battery grade chemicals and then turning those chemicals into components. So a component 
um, for the electrode side is just a you know a, a powder of of these sort of special highly technical um, compounds um, sort of particles there and and that requires quite a you know, a, a niche process um, to occur and as I said you know eighty percent of so of production of those current currently is within China and it's very difficult to establish um, yeah to, to establish a completely new production facility of of these components without that know-how. Um, as I say, it's, it's very technically challenging. When you have a real push, say in Europe or, or North America, to you know, localize a supply chain, it's it's not good enough just to you know, build new mines or, or new refineries, but also to build out this midstream too, um, so that your material flow stays within the region, as is the sort of desire of those governments. As we see reflected in some of these incentives which is requiring that to happen, but actually with kind of without the infrastructure in place to do that. So do you, do you detect the political will to actually recognise there's a problem in the midstream? It's not about building gigafactories and the ore isn't here and, you know, it's just not here. So is there a political, political will, do you believe, to actually recognise that that's where the issue is and actually do something about that at a strategic level? So, I mean, there's certainly the political will. I think the gigafactory side, so these are the, the facilities that produced the lithium ion cells. We've seen that, you know, the incentivizing and you know, subsidies to help build out these gigafactories within Europe and North America. So in some part, that is, you know, bringing along the midstream um, to those regions there. I think that was maybe, yeah, there, there maybe was a lot of expertise around cell production. Obviously, Tesla and Panasonic have been running their gigafactories in, in the US um, for, for quite some time now. And then in Europe, there's, there's some good expertise in cell production. There is certainly this realization around this kind of gap in the midstream within those regions and, and looking to incent and, and to localize that. I think also realizing that this could and probably will come at a cost you know the cost of production of these say cathode and anode materials will be higher in, in europe and north america than, than in china you know, a lot of chinese firms are, are mostly you're fully integrated in terms of its supply chain and obviously runs at relatively low costs in terms of labor and, and, and electricity and um, to some extent so um so there is this knowledge that you know, building a cathode production plant in Europe, say, you know, this material will have to come at a, at a premium to, to, say, a China-produced material. By no means does it mean it's a better quality as well. I think, you know, um, this is this is a, an industry where, where China does have the know-how as well, as well as Korea and, um, and Japan as well, Japanese companies and Korean companies uh, do too. But there's certainly the, the expectation that um, an inability to compete on an economic scale um, than with a lot of Chinese produced uh, material, which is obviously the challenge. Hear this. This is the silence of dryness. Dry is what you want in battery manufacturing, especially in energy intensive operations, in dry room and drying. Dry is what you get when you select Visala. We know dry. Visit visala.com slash battery and get to know the technologically best suited products for your operations. Really interesting geopolitical situation. We were talking uh, a couple of days ago before before we recorded this call about Korea's response recently to uh, concern about over-reliance on China. It might be just worth just talking a little bit about that as an illustration of what's happening geopolitically. Korea obviously has a very good 
um, sale production um, industry. Um, a lot of the Korean producers in terms of sale production are setting up shop in the US and North America. So Samsung, SDI, uh, LG, Energy Solution, and SK on are the, the three major ones. Um, and Korea itself is, yeah, has this, this, this overwhelming reliance on China for something like um, anode materials. You know, it's, a, it's a component that you can't do without in a cell. And as I say, 99% of the spherical purified graphite is produced in China, and then is 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 then essentially shifted uh, ships to to Korea to, to put into cell production there. And so, yeah, there is this desire from Korea. I think they've just recently laid out a strategy to to reduce that reliance. Um, so Japan is a slightly different case because it has a really good uh, industry already established in terms of synthetic graphite production. So it's a different graphite anode material. Um, and so to some extent, it's got a lower reliance on China for that side. But, but Korea is yeah, the opposite case. It has a, a much larger reliance. And so, yeah, there is this um, uh, desire to, to, to establish its own industry and, and look to work with its key partners. So um, there's a few companies in Australia that are looking to, to build graphite production and nano production facilities um, as well, using graphite in mind in Australia and, and the south um, of the African continent. So there is an ability there, but but still, it's um, yeah. It, in terms of the volumes that are going to be available, is actually it's going to be relatively low. Um, certainly, in the next couple of years, when you know, building out new factories, building out new supply chains, yeah, certainly takes a long time. And this industry, well, a long time relative to yeah, this industry that is shifting year on year in terms of the, the scales. To what degree do you think does the advent of new technologies? A whole new generation of technologies change that picture. Does it change that picture at all? Or, or in general terms, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, you know, what are the technologies that we need to be keeping a very close eye on over the course of the next few years? And and how is that likely to change demand for materials? So aside from, say, a hydrogen fuel cell, electric vehicle, you know, these, these are well known. These are mm. part of, of the current uh, road transport space, but in much smaller volumes. You know, there's very few sales currently of, of fuel cell electric vehicles otherwise yeah keep staying in the battery world sodium ion has got a lot of attention over the last couple of years so catl um, is the leading cell producer in the world based in china it announced two years ago that it will start producing sodium ion cells and the real difference of this is it contains none of those you know, typical or classic battery raw materials that I mentioned. So it, it, it can contain none of lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, or, or manganese. Um, and so it's a real disruptor in terms of those supply chains. Um, and as I mentioned, over the past two years, we've seen a lot of announcements develop. Um, currently, we're tracking around 200 gigawatt hours worth of, of sodium ion facilities that have been announced and are being built, and some of them are already up operating um, at very small scales still, but but it, it has the potential to ramp up and, and become um, yeah a viable alternative technology um, to replace some lithium ion use. Well, the downside for sodium ion is it's low energy density, um, certainly on a volumetric scale. So in terms of storing energy in a, or, or liters of, of space, um, sodium ion is, is, much, is much lower, has a much lower capability of that. So if you're looking at a really leading Lithium-ion cell might be about 700 watt-hours per litre. And we think sodium-ion is maybe 300 or so watt-hours per litre, so less than half. And so when you have a, a volume-constrained 
application like electric vehicles, you know, and especially, yeah, um, especially electric vehicles with with looking at really high kilowatt hour pack sizes, it will be difficult to meet that with with sodium ion cells. And so for that reason, yeah, we we think it will be a yeah a viable technology for maybe the small range EVs, those inner city cars, as well as certainly stationary storage um, as well. So that's certainly a yeah yeah a viable technology for for use but again it's it's the scales so when when demand for batteries is scaling you know 20 percent each year or so you know roughly that number a uh, disrupting technology will need to establish itself and also scale at, at similar rates to, to, to take a you know a, a significant market share um which is obviously quite tough with a relatively new technology in terms of commercialization what degree do you think will recycling impact on the whole battery materials issue because clearly you know that that's an opportunity if you like if we if if, if that works and it works to the right right extent that you know suddenly we've got we've got uh, another source of raw materials that wasn't necessarily available to us before so what's what's your thoughts in terms of the state of recycling and where recycling is going and, and what impact recycling can make on the overall battery materials market yeah, I mean, recycling, again, has is, is received a lot of attention from you know, the large companies, the automakers, you know, who are looking to set themselves up for the future and to, to secure you know, sustainable raw materials um, from recycled batteries, which is obviously, um, yeah, fantastic in terms of the sustainability of future technologies. So currently, you know, there, there is still very little available batteries, to, uh, number of batteries or volumes of batteries to be recycled. You know, historically, it's relied on the consumer electronics um, industry, so your laptops and your smartphones. These you know, contain a lot of cobalt in them, more so than electric vehicle batteries. So there has been some, well, there's been the push to, to recover a lot of cobalt um, from these. And as the electric vehicle batteries have shifted to higher nickel content to reduce the cobalt content, you know, looking to, to promote nickel recovery as well. And so that's kind of where we are at the moment. And... In the last two years, lithium prices you know, really surged, maybe to six or seven times um, their, their their price at the start of 2021. And so there was again another shift to then now try and recover as much lithium as possible because it's you know, quite a significant value contained in this battery scrap. But still, you know, as I say, with with this demand, with this the sector growing as quickly as it is at the moment. And say the average electric vehicle lifespan might be 10 to, to 12 years, we think at the moment, you know, possibly even to 15 years. You're looking at, say, the 15 million EVs being sold this year, you know, trying to feed you know, material containing those EVs you know, will only come to recyclers in 10 10 years time or so and that might be feeding a market where there's you know 50 60 million evs being sold that year so then in terms of that you know, capability of of um having like a high recycled content in your new batteries each year is, is going to be quite difficult and really yeah impacted by those those kind of lengthy lag times between putting an ev on the market and, and getting it back in the recycling side so in the meantime, there is another source of scrap, which is is essentially from the gigafactories themselves. So they're, they're actually quite inefficient processes, um, especially at those scales. And so you see a lot of cells coming off the line that are either faulty or have um, yeah have, have not passed the quality control checks. And so for recyclers at the moment, it's not sort of all doom and gloom yet. You know, they will have some feedstock in the next 10 years from, from these gigafactories. And, and we're seeing that 
Um, and so a lot of OEMs have established these relationships with with recyclers to, to, to send their sort of faulty cells to. And then sort of the third feedstock sort of type is is kind of these electric vehicles that are coming either in you know minor accidents or, or major accidents on on the road that you know the battery pack is is um yeah not not viable to, to go back onto the road uh just because lithium-ion cells are quite dangerous when they are damaged and so you know, this will be some portion of, of feedstock for recyclers too so yeah there's, there's certainly a mix and again that will impact the recycling processes as well as well as the metal content and things like that so yeah it's quite a, a quickly shifting um space for uh, well, that side of the industry it's an interesting challenge this because of course most of the strategic changes which are, uh, and infrastructure development that's taking place of course only delivers in the medium term and of course the market is moving quickly in the short term and that's a that's a that's a very it's a very challenging scenario for anybody i guess well that's been a fantastic journey through that report i mean from your perspective before we bring this to a close what would you think are the key takeaways really in terms of maybe two or three things for people to specifically bear in mind as we close 2023 and look ahead to 2024 2024 i mean we're certainly coming up to the middle of this decade which is has come i think much quicker than uh, yeah i uh, thought it would but uh it really means it really highlights the yeah the pressure on the, the supply chain and certainly on the say the metals and mining side the fact that to achieve by 2030 so for the next sort of half of the decade this is the key as i say the critical point to, to kind of reach um, ev adoption in the mass market and and this requires yeah lower cost evs that require lower low cost batteries and, and this requires you know sufficient supply to come online and as i mentioned this this it's very difficult for this to come from the recycling sector so, so it must come from the primary supply from the mines um, themselves and so i think the focus for the next yeah certainly decade is is that there is this high pressure on the mining sector and it's struggling to keep up you know mines take a long time to to build or to, to even go through permitting process and and this is just a bit of a disconnect between the, the timeframes of that we need in terms of you know, the energy transition and, and to be aligned with some you know, net zero or decarbonisation um, goal. Without that, you know, without significant investment, without the interest in the mining space, you know, we might see a shortages of raw materials. We might see prices go up. And again, this will be prohibitive of, of, of mass market EV adoption. And so there certainly needs to be this knowledge that you know, metals are important and critical for any part of the energy transition, especially um, decarbonisation of transport and electric vehicle uh, uptake. Absolutely. I mean, you can't have one without the other. So exactly. Uh, brilliant. Well, Max, thank you so much for that. That's been a whistle stop, but fascinating uh, journey through that report. It's a great report. I'm going to make sure our access to that report is on the show notes of this podcast. Leads me now just to wish you a very happy Christmas, very happy new year. You know, look forward to the work that you're doing in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on and yeah, enjoy your uh, Christmas. The Battery Technology Podcast is a copyrighted GSE Media Limited production. For more details on how to reach us, you'll find our contact details in the show notes or at our website, www.batterytechnologypodcast.com dot com